1: It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast. Uh, Tuesday, May 23 is when we're recording this podcast. It's podcast episode number 82. We're inching our way to 100. We're going to have like a grand presentation for the 100th podcast. I haven't figured it out yet, but I think we're going to give away some stuff. uh, As soon as we can get the okay. Anyway. The Mike Masnelli Podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers, where last night I cashed a ticket because uh, the Denver Nuggets won that series against the Lakers. More on that in a bit. And a little later in the podcast, we'll be joined by baseball savant Tim Kirchen from ESPN has been covering the game for a really long time. We'll talk to Tim about the Phillies and the state of baseball. But right now, let's do phase one of the Mike Masnelli Podcast, which we like to call The Current. And in The Current... It's the NBA playoffs. So the NBA playoffs this year have shown that this is one year where, where it's not about who has the stars. It's about which team is more connected. We are watching two teams that are just more connected than anybody you're playing. The Denver Nuggets and Miami Heat, very underrated teams, don't have the, like the star power, although they do have a couple of stars, they're just more connected. The players on both of these teams mesh better with with these so-called better players, these stars that they have. And, and they blend the other players with a winning system and with great coaches who know how to blend them into a system. It's pretty phenomenal. Because we're under this impression of the NBA, you gotta win with stars. You gotta stack up stars to win the NBA. And this is one aberration year where it's the connected teams. Now, the Denver Nuggets sweep the Los Angeles Lakers last night. Uh, and let me just say something about the Lakers, because I, I didn't think that, you know, this myth that the Lakers were going to get to another title and it was going to be a great Le- 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 LeBron story, they weren't as good as Denver. They, they, they did a great job putting a team together in the middle of the season, and Darvin Hammond did a nice job coaching that team to the heights they got, because they were once a lost team. And because of the trades they made and, and the coaching difference that they made uh, they made themselves uh, into a team that got to the Western Conference Finals. So there was a good year uh, for the Los Angeles Lakers. I wouldn't call it uh, a, a failure, as uh, as Giannis would blanch at. Uh, but anyway, Denver sweeps them. Um, and if people voted for the MVP right now, who do you think would get it? Listen, I'm all about Joel Embiid too, right? But who do you think we get the MVP? At? The, watching this series and watching that guy play, Nikola Jokic, uh, the man is, is the engine of a team that's most likely going to win the NBA title. I mean, it, it's phenomenal. It's pure, pure and simple, to borrow a line from Casino, where uh, Ace Rothstein was sitting with Sharon Stone and said, I'll freaking kill you right in his place, pure and simple. Well, that's what it was. It was pure and simple that the Denver Nuggets are the best team in the league right now, and they're going to win the title. And I've, I've already bet them. I okay. Listen, can the Celtics pull Miracle? No. So it's going to be the Miami Heat going to the NBA Finals. And I think that's where the Heat will will finally run out of gas. So good for Denver and and, and good for Jokic. His game is a collective. And idiot fans, especially commentators, all year long rode this guy like, uh, you know, like Kendrick Perkins. Come on, Kendrick. Uh, As as a guy who, uh, you know, he's a stat patter. He wasn't really a great player. Um, uh, you know, all those people that did that should probably didn't watch the Denver nuggets a lot this year and they should all go to church and beg for forgiveness. Cause that guy's a great player. And he made a shot last night on, on a fade away three pointer with the ball over his head. He just makes this kind of plays. And he's like, he's like unfazed by, by everything. Like his demeanor is just like, Oh, do. and then all of a sudden zing! There's the, there's the right pass. There's the right play. There's the right shot. Uh, the guys a great player, uh, which brings me now to LeBron. See, this really gets my good, and I'm going to go off here because I know that there are LeBron haters out there that love a result like last night. Oh, they say he doesn't come up, clutch, blah, blah, blah. Let let, let me just uh, – here's the reason why people love to hate LeBron, and I'll go sociological here. They hate LeBron because of one guy, Michael Jordan. Because of Michael Jordan's presence in this world, people hate LeBron because in the Michael Jordan era – the people that love Michael Jordan can't stand the fact that there is some kind of competitor that came along to challenge Michael Jordan's status as the GOAT, right? That's the whole essence of this LeBron hate is that nobody who adored Michael Jordan wants anybody to tarnish Michael Jordan. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that I think Michael Jordan's the greatest player that ever lived, okay? And I've been a big LeBron fan for a really long time. But I think Michael Jordan's the greatest uh, player that ever lived, because I think just the way he shot the ball was a more reliable ball that was going to go to and did the basket. That that's simple as that. I, and I've always said Michael Jordan's the greatest, obviously because of that, because of the winning. But LeBron always did more on a basketball floor than Michael Jordan. And that will never happen again. This guy does more on a basketball floor than any player that ever did it in history. Now, I many people say, "Well, he's not, he's not Michael, he's not Kobe"? Come on, man. He's the second-best player of, of all time. Let me read a tweet that I read this morning from a lady. Her name is Nicole McMillan. This is what she wrote on Twitter this morning. This game perfectly sums up LeBron's shortcomings. He was great in the first half when there's no pressure on him because they were about to get swept. And then when they actually have a chance to win, he goes missing, just standing around the entire possession, not wanting the ball. So passive. I had to remind the call that this dude at age 38, at age 38 last night, had 40, 10, and 9. At age 38, scored 31 in the first half, right? Uh, to get this team off and, and and played all 48 minutes. Now, is it possible that a 38-year-old guy at the end of a game might feel a little fatigue in his legs and might expect somebody else on his freaking team to step up and do something? But they all could go, see, LeBron can't do it in the clutch. He played 48 minutes. He got his team all kinds of open shots last night that they didn't make. Uh, you think I mean this is mind-boggling to me and it all comes down this hate for LeBron LeBron is just flat out absurd and here's how I blame Michael Jordan the science of people is that they always like to think that when they grew up in their heyday of years that they owned the best player who ever lived it's like a It's like a provincial insecurity. Oh, because I saw Michael when I was in my heyday watching basketball. Michael has got to be the GOAT. Uh, I claim Mike. And so when this other guy comes along, it's like, no, no, no. It can't be as good as when I I was watching basketball. And it's just flat-out insecurity. It's ridiculous. So if you want to make Michael Jordan the greatest player of all time, make him the best player of all time. LeBron played 48 minutes last night. And had 40, 10, and 9. And and he becomes some kind of a villain, despite his greatness. Uh, It's ridiculous. It's childish. But it is what it is. Uh, So, Darren, let me just uh, have you weigh in on that first. Because I don't even know where you stand on that. I I have a feeling you're a Jordan guy and not a LeBron guy.
2: Well, uh, one thing I want to say, this is what I was chopping at the bit here to say, is that as someone at the, and I'm a little older than LeBron, I'm 48. But I am at the point, I've been at the point for several years now, every man reaches that point where you start to feel and know your physical limitations, right? I can't work out like I did when I was 28 years old. I can't throw a punch or do a run or do anything the way I did when I was 28 years old. Of all the numbers you said about LeBron last night, the 40, the 10, what the 48 minutes is what stuck out to me, is what's hung in my ear like, Jesus, 48 minutes, that man. At 38 years old, so that's what most impressed me. And that, and I totally agree with you. And I am a Jordan guy. Michael Jordan is my in my opinion the greatest basketball player to ever lived. But all the LeBron hate is only because of Michael Jordan. And right now, all I'm thinking about is that scene from The Last Dance, right? He's just looking. at He's not talking about LeBron when he does it. But when he's looking at the laptop, laughing. <laughs> that's just a great scene because I'm sure he does that every time someone talks about LeBron.
0: Uh, so, so here let's get to the next level on this because there's the next level. That's why after the game he said I've got a lot, a lot to think about. Now, I assume that means he, he teased retirement. He's not going to retire, okay? First of all, uh, you know, and, and here's what people also say about LeBron: like, I'm tired of the drama with LeBron. What do you mean the drama? He happens to be the most legendary player still playing in the game. Of course, there's going to be drama. People are going to follow his every move. He, it, it, like that drama comes with LeBron because he's because of his greatness. So, what? How could you be tired of that? He's still doing it at age 38. So what So what now? He said, I have a lot to think about. Now, if he could retire, he's not going to retire because he's got this notion that somehow he can play with his son. Now, I couldn't care less about that. I got to be honest with you. That moment would last for 10 seconds for me. Oh, it was nice. Yeah, he's on the same floor with Bronny big freaking deal I, I I don't get involved in in storylines like that right to me it's about whether a team can win or not it's not about what's what's gonna light him up that he plays with his son I ha that, 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 that doesn't mean anything. these stupid things don't even, don't mean anything to me but if he steps away he would cancel that out so he's gonna at least keep that notion alive a little more now so so now what happens he he has to he has to depend that the Lakers get a little better right so Here's here's the last move they can make. Kyrie, Ky- Kyrie was at the at both of those games, at the, at the uh, both the L A games. Now he 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 made himself available more in L A this series than he did the whole season playing. He, he was visible. He wasn't visible during the season for any team, but he was visible. So he is putting a message out there. I want to play with the Lakers and you know how, how this works. If LeBron wants him, if Kyrie talks his way out of Dallas, it's going to happen. Kyrie Irving is going to join LeBron to give him that one, two punch now for the, for the last, uh, the, the last hurrah. Uh, so, uh, th- that's, what's going to happen with the Lakers and, uh, He's not going to take. People say he's going to take a gap year. No, he can't take a gap year at age thirty eight. Can't come, take a year off. But here's the thing about him. he's got to Like the workouts that he has to go through again to get his body ready for another NBA season may, may prevent him from from even accepting it. But I think he's going to try it. I think he's going to come back. Boom, mark my words, it's going to be Kyrie with LeBron next year, and that's going to be the drama of LeBron. And then the Bronny thing goes down the road because, frankly i I don't think I don't think Bronny is NBA worthy after a year. Uh, so whatever that is, it is. That's irrelevant to me uh, when it comes to to LeBron James. Uh, okay, so uh, let's get to the Boston Celtics now. now. I'll play off long. I've been saying the Boston Celtics are flimsy. Have I not been saying that, Darren?
2: You have been saying it quite often.
0: I've been saying from the, this team, there's something missing. This team is flimsy. These two stars don't show up together ever, and they don't show up uh, consistently in a particular game. And the same thing is happening to them against the Miami Heat. Miami Heat are playing with this team. It's silly. They're slapping them around like the Three Stooges, for crying out loud. They're out coaching them. They're out hustling they them. They're, they're, they're out scheming them. They're making three-point shots. Uh, And and so the Boston, again, these two stars have a tendency to poop to bed when you least expect it. And and that's exactly what's happening in this series. So now, I don't know if the the Heat are going to sweep them. I I have a feeling that they will. I think Boston is pretty much dead. Uh, But this Boston team has shown that their two stars can't lead them anywhere. And it makes me feel 100 times worse that the Sixers folded in the last five minutes of a game six against this flimsy team. And then in being hard and quit in a game seven against this flimsy team and the Celtics are the team playing the heat instead of the Sixers because they should be playing the heat. And right now, maybe there would have been a different result and they would have been a more formidable foe for the Miami heat in the Eastern conference finals. And so uh, this is what I say. Clap. It irritates the hell out of me that this Celtics team is getting bounced by the Heat, and maybe the Sixers would have had uh, a better chance to beat the Yeah, Eagles. you're out of your mind oh, on that's, that. That's where you're I stand.
2: You're out of your mind on that. You're crazy. The Sixers would have gotten their doors blown off by this team. They're so well coached.
0: Yeah, maybe they would have, but guess what? The Celtics are getting their doors blown off, so maybe the Sixers would have been a more formidable foe, and maybe MB would have been able to dominate Bam out of bio, which he usually did in any game they played. All right. So let's get to the Sixers right now and what they are and what their coaching staff is. And and, and this just in. I don't care who the coach is. I've been asked a hundred times by people, what do you think the coach is going to be? I I don't care. I don't care who it is at this point. You recycle a coach, recycle a coach. You're trying to get the same result out of a team that is is a little flawed, okay? So whether it's Nick Nurse, people say they need Nick Nurse because they need a tactician. All right, whatever, I'll buy that. Hey, they need Budenholzer because he's one and he's experienced with Oh, whatever. Bring in Budenholzer. I can bring them both in. Make them co-coaches. I, I don't give a flip. Bring in Monty Williams. He was here before. He had a relationship. The team has to change in some form. And the only way the team is going to change is that James Harden has to go. And you have to find a suitable replacement that's going to give you some of some points and some athleticism and some contributions on both ends to fill that gap. Who is that? I don't know. Daryl Morey gets paid to figure out who it is. I can give him a suggestion and say, here's what you do. You package something with Tobias Harris. You convince the Portland trailblazers. To, to, to give you Damian Lillard because they're not going to go anywhere. You convince them that they are in rebuilding mode. They don't need Damian Lillard. And here's Tobias Harrison and his $47 million contract. And after one year, you can get that whole 47 off your cap and you can get a damn free agent because you're not going to win crap next year. All right, that's what I would say. But I don't know what they're going to do. So that's it. My biggest concern is getting Harden out of here and replacing him with another viable, semi-star-like player, and I don't freaking care who the coach is. I don't have a preference. Whoever they hire, it's the same thing. I had to sit there and go, all right, we'll see what Brett Brown can do. All right, we'll see what the what, 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 uh, uh, Doc Rivers can do. All right, we'll see what this guy can do. It's in, in the in the league, you got to have guys that connect and mesh. Yeah, a lot of that is because of the coach. Mike Malone. And Eric Spoelstra have done that, but they've done it with the right players who are connectable. The Sixers had a bunch of players that weren't connectable. They didn't connect. Now, finding the secret to that, I don't know what it, what is the secret, but that's somehow you gotta find them. And Daryl Morey needs to say stop it Bringing in the stars and find some connective people. Isn't that
2: part of the coach's job to help find people who connect? Then he have nine undrafted guys on the roster, Mike. Nine. Spolster's not partly responsible for that. I think you're. I think you're shortchanging.
0: He's partly responsible, but these are guys that want to connect. So you got to have guys that want to connect. A guy like Harden doesn't want to connect with anybody. A guy like Embiid may not would be wanting to connect with anybody. But but Embiid is so conditioned to think he's the best. He doesn't do anything to connect. They have to connect to him. I I don't know what the answer is, but this is this is what a the roster they have is not the answer. And so you got to change it up, and whether it's the co if Nick Nurse comes in here and makes miracles, I'll say Nick Nurse is the greatest coach ever. But it's I've gotten to the point where a coach does not make as much difference as players who can mesh on the floor, and it's about the players meshing. The coach can only do so much. You got to send them out there. He can't put them through the paces once they're out there. They have to figure out a way to connect with each other, and that's what the Sixers don't do.
1: It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: All righty, let's move the conversation on the Mike Missanelli podcast to baseball with our uh, next very important guest. The Phillies lost to the Diamondbacks last night after they're winning a couple against the Cubs. And, you know, this is the way it's been going for this team uh, on these mini rallies. And then they implode a little bit, get some setbacks. Uh, They've been terribly inconsistent. They're 22-25, and fourth place in the NL East, seven behind the Braves, and right now three back of the wild card. Uh, So are they going to sprout soon, or is this the kind of season it's going to be? Let's get get some insights from a man who's been covering Major League Baseball for about 40 years. Uh, And uh, like our buddy Stark, uh, he is in the Baseball Hall of Fame, a Career Excellence Award. He was awarded – a couple years ago, you hear him as a baseball analyst on ESPN Baseball Tonight, also on SportsCenter an Occasional Game. The one, the only, the great Tim Kirchin. Hello, Tim.
3: Hi, Mike. Let me tell you quickly. Uh, last year, since you brought it up at the Hall of Fame, my whole family was there. My son, Jeff, who's 29 and works in Philadelphia on the radio, he meets Mike Schmidt at Cooperstown last year and the greatest third baseman of all time. Gave my son 25 minutes, 25 minutes talking to him because he had just moved to Philly. Like, here's what it's like. Here's what you can expect, that type of thing. So tells you a little bit about Mike Schmidt, that he met my son, who was courageous enough to go up and say, hello, I just moved to Philly. And Mike Schmidt
0: gave him 25 minutes. That's a good day in the Kirchen family. That That is a pretty good day, especially since uh... – If he gave, it was 25 cordial minutes. I don't think he gave 25 cordial minutes to the people who covered him as a, as a Philly. So he, he's mellowed out a little bit. I'm well aware of the reputation. I covered him too when he played. I understand. I got it. Yeah. You you know that, that whole, that whole scene. Uh, All right, so Tim, let's get into the Phillies. And, you know, listen, you have a a trained eye for this. And There comes a point in time where you look at a team and you go, eh, maybe they're going to be like this all year long. Now, last year they kind of started the same way, and we knew they were kind of a good team, and they blossomed at the right time. But you can't get away with that all the time with these slow starts. So what are you seeing right now? Well, I'm not seeing much good right now, just like you. But I am
3: going to say that the Phillies are still – going to make the playoffs one way or another. Look, they can't be this bad. They're tied for 10th in the league and run scored. That's a way better lineup than tied for the 10th in the National League and run scored. Their rotation should be really good. They're Their starters rotation has a 4.86 ERA. That has to get better. Nola, Wheeler, Walker, it's got to get way better than that. And Trey Turner, and this is obvious for today, Trey Turner is way better than this. His OPS is like 150 points higher than his career OPS. This is going to turn for the Phillies. Now, I'm not suggesting they're going to beat the Braves and win the East. But when you look around the rest of the National League, there's some weak teams in the Central. The Padres look terrible in the West. There are wild card spots to be won, and I still think the Phillies are going to find a way to pull it together and make the playoffs.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I, I think they're too good of a team not to be in the wild card. But let, let's look at some of the flaws because none of us have a problem with the lineup from top to bottom, but. The pitching has been worse. The depth of the starting pitching has been worse, I think, that anybody could have anticipated. And, and even the top two have shown periods of inconsistency. So w- will Dombrowski have to do something here? Well, you wouldn't think he would have to go out and
3: get a starting pitcher, but... Maybe he's going to have to. Now, I repeat, Nola and Wheeler are way better than mid-4 ERA guys, and they're going to get way better than this. I'm certain. Not sure Taiwan Walker is going to be the pitcher we saw the last couple years who was really good. But Dombrowski, as we know, is the master of keeping everything quiet, not not speaking to anyone. And then suddenly he's got somebody. So we brought this up with Buster Olney yesterday. Shane, Shane Bieber might be might be available if I don't think he will be, by the way. Buster thinks he'll be available at the end of July because the Guardians are struggling so badly. And that would be a perfect guy for the Phillies to go get. I'm not, I don't think it's happening. I think they hang on to them, but I've done the research on the rest of the trade market for quality starting pitching, and it's just not there. Meaning, the guys the Phillies have now just have to get better because I don't see them or anyone else going out in the trade market and acquiring a number one or number two start.
0: Yeah, I I guess it all depends on whether Suarez can come back to that level and Tywell Walker can be somewhat consistent, but they still have the fifth guy who was supposed to be Painter. There's another guy named Abel. Is there a chance that they fast forward the timetable on Abel instead of Painter at this point? Well, Painter was
3: going to make the club, as you know, before he got hurt. Uh, So I think they're going to give him every chance to get healthy, come back and pitch the way that they saw him pitch as a 19-year-old in spring training. And again, teams are taking kids to the big leagues much earlier than usual these days. Painter would be my choice to make it. But again, he's got to be healthy because you can't rush now a 20-year-old unless he's completely healthy. And if they're not sure that he is, they're going to have to go in another direction.
0: All right. We're talking to the great Tim Kirkjian. Tim, let me get just philosophical about baseball for a second and get your insights on this. I had a conversation with Ruben Marrow a couple of days ago. Uh, and I asked him, well, He's now he's, do, he's doing announcing locally. Uh, and this is a guy who was in baseball for a long time, a former general manager. Then he he, he decided he wanted to go into coaching. And then all, now all of a sudden he's doing TV. And I said, do, do you miss being involved in baseball? It's hard for a general manager, I guess, to, to just dismiss it completely. And he said he doesn't miss it at all because of where the game has gone and he doesn't like it he doesn't like the way the game has gone he doesn't like the way the game is being played today now you hear that lament from a lot of old school guys but from your trained eye does that have any validity to it or or is it just we have to accept the game evolves well
3: the game evolves the game will change the game is the best game ever it will always be the best game ever but Ruben is speaking for a lot of guys who played in the big leagues, who are older now, whose value is no longer needed as far as older, uh, you know, managers, coaches, instructors, scouts, all sorts of guys. There's no place for them in the game today. And it's in part because we've taught the game so differently now than we did 20, 30 years ago. and, and that saddens me. The game needs to get better than it is right now. That's why these rule changes were made as we've lost the value of the hit in the major leagues. We no longer value a guy who wins a batting title. Mike, when I grew up, I'm as old as you almost. When I grew up, you know, Rod Carew wins a batting title. That that was a big deal. Later, Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs, that was a big deal. It's no longer a big deal. It was also a big deal when Bob Gibson would pitch in the World Series in the late 60s, and he'd go up against Jim Lomborg, and this is a starting pitching matchup from heaven. And we don't have that anymore because we've lost the value of the starting pitcher also. I think both of those are slowly coming back. I think we're slowly getting away from too many walks, too many strikeouts, too many home runs because we need to. The players are bigger, stronger, faster, and better than ever. But the game is not played as well, I don't believe, as it was played in the 80s because of the
0: style of play, which I repeat is starting to come back to where it used to be. All right, so they're teaching the game differently, and, you know, some things, th- that may be cyclical every now Do you see it kind of going back to, you know, the way it used to be taught, or is this here to stay and you just have to live with it? It's... <laughs> Well, Max
3: Muncy just struck out for five times in a game for the second time this season, and he's one of the best power hitters in the league. This is the way it works. And with the pitching that we see today, you you better make an adjustment. Otherwise, you have no shot against the the stuff that these guys see today. Upper 90s every night, secondary stuff from hell. And until we make these adjustments as hitters, we're going to have too many strikeouts, too many walks, and... If our pitchers don't adjust, too many home runs also. We're coming back to the way the game used to be played, but it's not going to be done in a year or two. This is going to take a while before a hitter says, I'm going to go up there and hit a ball up the middle. I'm going to hit a hard ground ball over there. I'm going to hit a fly ball with a man at third and get that runner in. They have not been conditioned to do this because the industry has not asked them to do this. Now we're asking a little bit more. We'll see what kind of adjustment the players make. Yeah.
0: It may take several years to filter that back in. Um, uh, let me, let me ask you about your baseball background. I've had many conversations with Jason Stark about this. Uh, Jason was a colleague of mine at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the love of, of the game of baseball. It just comes out of his pores. Just, just like it does for you. And I know you are one of these box score guys, that you would find the box score in the agate section of a newspaper and cut it out and paste it and do all that stuff, right? What was it about baseball that turned you on so much?
3: Well, I grew up in a baseball family. My dad was a really good player. He had a great feel for the game. My two brothers, Matt and Andy, are in the Catholic University Baseball Hall of Fame, both of them. This is the primary language we spoke in my house growing up. This wasn't something I got interested in after college. This has been with me my entire life. I also went to Walter Johnson High School Named after the greatest pitcher of all time, so there was some destiny involved there. I, I worked for the school paper; it was called the Pitch. Uh, I, I worked for the yearbook a little bit; it was called the Windup. Uh, so I always felt like they—this is something I was meant to do—is cover baseball. And you're right; it was pathetic, but I cut out every box score of every game for twenty years, and I never missed a day. Meaning, I never forgot to do my box scores one day. Twenty days, twenty years in a row without missing a day. I think we can all agree that's way more impressive than any streak that Cal Ripken ever put together. But that was my way of trying to keep up with 30 teams at once. I would just gone to Sports Illustrated. I'm not a beat guy anymore. I'm not just covering the Orioles or the Rangers. I have to cover everyone. And the only way to do that was to cut out all the box scores. So when I would fly from DC to San Diego, I could look in my box score book on the airplane and see every Padre game. It taught me, say, a lot.
0: Tim, for me, there's no, there's no pure existence of a journalist than to be a baseball beat writer. And you did it for many years. Um, and, uh, I, you were covering the Orioles in, in the, in the Ripken, uh, heyday. Uh, and I know how difficult it is to cover a baseball team, especially in the, in the Ripken heyday. With all, I—I I, I tell you a quick story. I was working for the inquiry. They told me to do a story on whether in Baltimore they're going to bench Cal. You know those they, those controversies came up all the time. He was hurting the team, and he had to break the streak in a whole bit. And uh, the first guy I run into down there is Cal Ripken Senior. Now I didn't know much about <laughs> Cal Ripken Senior, and he bit my freaking head off. It was the most unpleasant experience I've ever had trying to dig out a story. My point is that covering baseball today and covering it back then when you were a beat writer, what are the differences and how did you survive it? Well,
3: I loved it. It was the best, most rewarding, most satisfying, most difficult job I've ever had. I did it for 10 years. I would show up at the ballpark. Well, I would show up for a 7 o'clock game at two o'clock always, and I would be in the clubhouse when it opened at 3.30. And back then, Mike, and you remember this, the clubhouse was open at like 6.30, half an hour before the game. Now we get 45 minutes in the clubhouse, maybe, and half the players aren't even at their lockers, if not more. So it's much harder to cover baseball than it was back then because the access back then was tremendous. And the players didn't mind talking to you now with their own Twitter feed and everything else, they don't need to talk to us anymore. And that saddens me because after all these years, I still love to talk to the players. And most of them are now 40 years younger than me. And I still like to talk to the players. They've always fascinated me, but it is harder to talk to them because you just can't find them at your
0: locker like you used to. What was your approach back then? Because, you know, it, you have to, it's such a delicate balance to develop relationships with guys and then have to kind of be critical at times. How did you handle that? Well, I was critical a lot,
3: but I didn't go looking for it. But I covered, Mike, I covered some of the worst teams of all time. Don't forget, I, I covered the 88 Orioles. They lost their first 21 games to start that season. So not like it matters, but Frank Robinson took us out to dinner. All the writers, when they were 0-18, we had an off night in Minneapolis. So during dinner, Frank's one of the all-time greats, alright So I say to Frank, has anyone interesting called you during this you know, unbelievably bad start. And he goes, yeah, the president called me today. And so Frank's a big kidder. So I push him like three times on this. And he says, damn it, the president of the United States called me today. I said, Frank, what did he say? He said, Frank, I know what you're going through. And Frank said, Mr. President, you got no idea what I'm going through. That's how bad the Orioles were. And they were bad for most of my time covering them. And I covered the Rangers in the 80s. They were even worse than the Orioles. Sheldon Ocker, who covered the Indians for the entire decade of the 80s, he and I got in an argument one night, who wrote the most losing game stories in the 80s? I thought it had to be me. Sheldon said, no, no, no. I I wrote more losing game stories than anyone. And to answer your question, Mike, you got to write the truth. You got to write the story. It's not easy going in there every night. But as you know, it's a lot easier to go in there when you do go in every night. The hard part is you don't take road trips or you just show up as a columnist once a month. That's when you get in trouble. But when you show up every night, at least the players look at you and say, all right, he was hard on me or the team this morning, but at least he came back to the ballpark. And comes back every day. And they respect
0: that part of it, I guess, which is uh, refreshing to hear. Uh, all right. I'm going to go here because, you know, I I used to read a lot of Steinbeck books and uh, Travels with Charlie. And so I, I want to get that. Like you could write a book. I want you to write a book called Travels with Kruky, Um, because of that bus tour that you guys uh, take. Get, share those experiences with you and the bus with John Cruck. Well, that's about as good as it
3: gets for me is a week, maybe two weeks on the bus with Crucky. He would routinely start he would just look at me and go, "Did I ever tell you about the time i and and of course i I'd never heard this story before. He has a million of them, of course, in the minor leagues <laughs> his his roommate was a bank robber. Did I ever tell you about the time that I roomed with a bank robber in the minor league? So he tells me that whole story. It was just unbelievable. The cops came to the door one night looking for him and almost knocked the door down. And John said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for your roommate. He just robbed a bank. I mean, these are the crucky stories that... I have a million of them. Most of them I can't repeat, even on a podcast. Sorry. But he, this is so typical, Crucky. He looks at me one day like we're going to Dunedin. It doesn't matter where. He goes, did I ever tell you about the time that I shot a deer in the hot tub? <laughs> so with Kruke, with Crucky, you have to ask him, Crucky, were you in the hot tub? Was the deer in the hot tub? <laughs> were both of you in the hot tub? And he goes, no. He said, I, I was in the hot tub senior year in high school. I'm naked. I see a deer in the woods. I've got my shotgun leaning up against the hot tub. And then he pauses as if he expects me to now say, yeah, Crucky, that's where I keep my shotgun leaning up against the, the hot tub. He stands up butt naked, shoots a deer in the woods. That's what he did when he was a senior in high school. And I'm not surprised at all. But the bottom line is this, Crucky knew more about baseball than almost anyone I've ever met. He told me on the bus one day, he said, go and look this up. I bet the 93 Phillies, who, as you guys remember, went to the World Series. He said, I bet we didn't turn more than two 5-4-3 double plays the whole year. So I looked it up. Dave Hollins, the third baseman, had a bad elbow. He couldn't throw the ball like sidearm to second. He could only throw it to first. I looked it up. The Phillies pulled... Two 5-4-3 double plays the entire season, and they went to the World Series. That's the kind of stuff that Crucky would tell me. And I have to tell you this. We're in we're in Maryvale with the Brewers. We're on the bus. And this woman runs into John Cruck, and she's got her two little kids. This is so great. This is so sad. She has two kids. They're eight and six years old. She just lost her husband. Somehow this comes up. Crucky brings that lady and her two children on that bus, and they spent the entire day with us. He treated them like royalty. And, and when, when they left, the, the lady who Crucky had never met before is literally weeping that someone would take that kind of time to help her with her two children. Crucky is a diverse personality in so many ways. People don't see that warm, fuzzy side. I've seen it more than once. Did you see it in 93 when you were in that clubhouse? <laughs> oh, my God. I think my favorite story that I ever wrote for Sports Illustrated was on the 93 Phillies. I walked in the clubhouse. <laughs> I walked in the clubhouse at Wrigley Field one day. In It's a day game. So it's like nine o'clock in the morning. Mitch Williams walks by me carrying a burrito that is as big and as heavy as a brick at nine o'clock in the morning. Curt Schilling walks by me. I used to cover him in Baltimore. He stops me and he whispers in my ear, watch out. The animals are out of their cages today. That's how he described the 93 Phillies. And you know, you know this, Mike, he was right. We've never had a team ever like the 93 Phillies since. They stayed after every game, rode her home, ate pizza, drank beer. And Crucky told me like 14 of our guys got a divorce that year. But what they were doing after the games, was they were sitting around talking ball after the game. We don't do that anymore. And I'm not suggesting you should be eating pizza and drinking beer and getting a divorce. I'm just saying Crucky identified what brought that team together. And it was, they all hung
0: out all the time. It was the most insane experience I've ever had as a sport. I was in that clubhouse a lot in 93. In fact, I ran into Dave Hollins a couple days ago. Let me tell you this quick Dave Hollins story. He was so intriguing because he was so intense to the point of almost looking at his, like he was insane and in, in front of his locker. (laughs) So I decided to do a magazine story on him and I thought it would be a good resource would be to talk to his wife. So I got in touch with his wife, and I said, "Well, he's so intense. What is he to, like to live with?" And she says, "Well, uh, you know, sometimes i come home after a bad game and just go into the TV room and stare at the TV, and the TV's not on, and there's no lights in. he's just staring at it for hours." And I said, "Well, because she was with him for a long time. I said, "Did you know this this early in his life?" She said, "Yeah." I said, "Can you give me an example of that?" She said, "Well, he was in the minor leagues, and it was uh, like Riverside, California. The team lost. The clubhouse was broken down. They were dressing out of an old trailer. And so he walks off the field first after the game that they lost, and he's really mad. And I said, "Hello, David." And he 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 ignored me and said, "Get away from me!" And and he went into the into the makeshift um, uh, trailer. To, to tra- so the team now follows him, and they say to her, "Who's in there?" And she said, "It's David." They made an about face and went back to the field. <laughs> she said she looked at the, she looked at the trailer; it was shaking. He went inside and tried to tip it over. He was so angry.
3: Yeah, I probably shouldn't repeat this, but Crucky told me a story once that Dave Hollins was so intense. Doug Brokale, the former pitcher, was the best man in his wedding because they were teammates along the way. Then they split apart. Now they're on different teams. And Doug Brokale, the best man at his wedding, came up to speak to him behind the batting cage like two hours before the game. And Dave Hollins told him, get out of here. Don't you ever talk to me before a game. I have a game in two hours and you're the opponent. Don't you ever do that to me again. That's who Dave Hollins was. And you don't have to agree with it. But that's one of the reasons that he was such a good player and that team was so good. I think all the guys were afraid of him.
0: Yeah, uh, they were totally afraid of him. They, they, they didn't go near him. But yeah, you know, I, I I'm t- it's funny. His son now is a highly draftable player. I don't know if you knew this. He's a, I did. he's yeah. the the high school. Uh, he leads the high sc- high schools in home runs nationally. He's a junior in South Carolina, so he thinks he's going to be a first round draft pick. The guy's name is Bo. So. Hopefully he's a little calmer than Dave was. Tim, uh, uh, just a couple uh, last ones. You have this reputation as a really good pickup basketball player. I think I think no. I may have been in a pickup game with you once. So uh, uh, so explain. You're not a very tall guy. So wh- what was the style? Do you just beat everybody off the dribble? Look, Mike, I'm 5'4
3: and a i I'm 66 years old. I have an artificial right hip now. And you think I'm going to tell you what a great basketball player I was at one point in my life?
0: <laughs> well, not now, but back in the day. Back in the day, they used to talk about how good you were in a pickup game. Right, at 5'5", five five, I better be quick
3: enough off the dribble to get around somebody. At 5'5", five five, I better be good enough to shoot the three because I... I got to get as far away from people as I possibly can. And if I five, I better be able to get it to the big man one way or another. But let me tell you, my, the last time I really played, uh, well, I didn't really play, but I went in a gym. There are four people in the gym. And it's two adults and two little kids who are about 10 years old. So the two 10-year-olds come up to me and say, you want to play two-on-two? So I assume this means it's going to be an adult and a kid against an adult and a kid. No, they want to play the two adults two-on-two. So now I'm being guarded by a 10-year-old. And (laughs) I must say, I took him to the hoop a few times, and I was pretty happy about that because he was bigger than me at age 10. So that's where my basketball career is right now, playing two 10-year-olds in two-on-two in an empty gym.
0: That's okay. He's got to learn, Tim. Grind him up. Uh, All right, last question. Uh I it is probably going to be difficult for you to answer, but the top three you've covered ball for so long, the top three moments that stick out to you being involved in this game? Uh well,
3: the ninety one World Series game seven, Jack Morris one to nothing, ten innings, and the twins beat the Braves. Remember, the Twins and the Braves had finished in last place the year before. And then they went to the World Series and played seven tremendous games with Jack Morris uh, winning game seven, one to nothing. Because it was so important, that's probably my biggest and best memory. Number two. I think has to be Cal Ripken's breaking of Lou Gehrig's record. Not because, I mean, we, it wasn't a dramatic moment at the time because we knew he was going to play, but it meant so much more than just a baseball game. That was about loyalty and neighborhood and commitment, and everything else. And uh, I'll never forget how many people were literally crying in the stands that night when he made that impromptu 22-minute run around the stadium, pushed out of the dugout by Rafael Palmero and Bobby Bonilla. And by the end of that night, people just had the greatest feeling in the world about baseball because that night is when baseball started to come back from the strike of 94, 95. So, uh, so that's number two. Uh, number three, I'm not even sure I know, but I was in, of course, I've covered every World Series game since 81. When the, when the Diamondbacks came back to beat the Yankees in game seven and Louie Gonzalez hit that little blooper or drawn in infield off of the greatest closer of all time and the Diamondbacks beat the Yankees, uh, that was a stunningly Uh, amazing turn, because to me, there was no doubt about it. Mariano Rivera was going to close that game out, and the Yankee dynasty was going to continue. But not only did Rivera give it up, the Yankees lost, and I want to say that was the end
0: of the dynasty, but they were never quite the same after that. They're pretty Three pretty good ones. Alright, so just for the record, so if people in Philadelphia are already freaking out about the Sixers' failure. The, the Phillies are supposed to take them through this summer until you get to the Philadelphia Eagles season. So you're suggesting that there is hope, they will be in the playoffs, it should be a decent summer for them until the Eagles play. I, I believe all of that. I spent a lot of
3: time around the Phillies In October last year, and I was wildly impressed with the attitude, the toughness, all that. And I think eventually that's gonna come back. Again, Rob Thompson's really good at this. They love playing for him. They have to do a whole lot better. Kyle Schwarber can't hit 177. You know, Trey Turner has to get way better. Two guys at the top have to get way better. But I think it's gonna happen, and it's not because I think they're great. I repeat, I don't see them beating the Braves, but I look around at the other playoff contenders and they all, a bunch of them have similar issues. The Cardinals, the Padres, the Brewers, you know, even the Mets. Uh, so that's why I think they're going to get this
0: together and make the playoffs. Tim, thank you so much for coming on uh, the, the uh, podcast. We really appreciate it. Great to catch up with you. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, hopefully we, we cross paths somewhere down the road. Thank you so much. Okay, Mike. Thank you.
1: It's the Mike Nassonelli Podcast on the Butt Rivers Network.
0: All right, thanks so much to Tim Kirch. And Tim, Tim's a good dude. And uh, yeah, a lot of people have told me what a good pickup basketball player he is. So uh, yeah, uh, thanks for Tim for coming on, talking about the Phillies. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's, uh, let me tell you a little something about uh, natural lawn here. And uh, yeah, I, my lawn looks great. I've been look, I'm looking outside now at my lawn. I go, man, it looks really good. And you know why? Because uh, I've been a customer for a long time of natural lawn of America. Now, why did I do that? Because I wanted to get my lawn fertilized, but I also wanted to get it fertilized with natural material. So natural lawn of America uh, reduced their their pesticide use by 85% in their applications. And that creates a safer lawn for your family and your pets to enjoy. But here's a special feature. How many people go out in their backyard and get eaten alive by mosquitoes? So, well, Natural Lawn provides complete control with their mosquito control program, three-way protection program, kills the adult mosquitoes that are there, eradicates the mosquito larva, and creates a repellent barrier and it turns your property into a mosquito-free zone. And it's backed by a satisfaction guarantee. You go out in your backyard, you get no mosquitoes, you got a beautiful lawn, it's a no-brainer. Go to Natural Lawn of America, uh, Natural Lawn of America. You just uh, Google it and uh, you'll find uh, a natural lawn uh, servicer nearest you. Uh, all right, it is uh, it is now time for Mike Unleashed. All right, let's get into this, Mike Unleashed. Okay, let's start with golf. Uh, the PGA tournament just uh, finished over the weekend. Um, I bet Brooks Kepka on my Bet Rivers app. How about that? And that took a lot of heart for me because I don't like him That's a little nice bit. I, I, I don't like him That's a little, job. and I bet him, and, and he cashed for me. So. So Kepka wins, and he puts him in rarefied air. He's always talking about how great he is and how disrespected. He's won five majors now, okay? He hasn't won a lot of tournaments, but he's won five majors, and that puts him in a lofty uh, uh, program with other great golfers who've been able to Only you know, a few others have been able to win that, that many majors, and it puts him in rarefied air. Um, but many people, including producer Darren, think the bigger story of the PGA was Michael Block, the 46-year-old uh, PGA teaching professional from California who, who challenged all four rounds. Uh, and um, he, the, the, first of all, this guy, you have to get in. 20 PGA tour professionals were in it, pro, uh, club pros. You qualify, you get in. It's open to any PGA member of America, and club pros are members of the PGA. Uh, so uh, he got in. And um you know this guy's job he teaches uh, uh, he charges $125 for 45 minutes at, at a lesson at, at a public course so it is a Cinderella story but my god have we overblown this story or what the guy it's not like that guy wanted he finished 15th they did a great job and you know it rarely happens but tell me Darren why you
2: think this is such a big story First of all, you and I, and you and I went back and forth all goddamn night on Sunday about and yesterday about this. You, you, you and let me tell everybody: you were heavily involved in your in your country clubs annual tournament. You were right—the the spring on, derby. On the right, right. So the Plymouth White Marsh their annual tournament.
0: White you Marsh Valley.
2: Involved. White Marsh Valley. I apologize. <laughs> White Marsh Valley. So you weren't watching this unfold on television. The drama was incredible. When he hit the hole in one, I'm telling you, it was it, it was mind-blowing. It's a nice story. It's not like the be-all, end-all. You got it up there with Tin Cup. It, was it tin wasn't cup. Tin all, Cup. My... The guy's a teaching professional. He was a golf course pro, Tin Cup, or a driving range pro. But he was a screw-up. There are 29,000. 29,000 uh, PGA pros. And make sure everybody understands the difference. Any any golf course you go to where there is a pro on hand is a PGA pro. 29,000 of them. No one, none of them ever in the history of the game of golf. This isn't Quidditch, Mike. This is an old game. This game's 250 years old. <laughs> no one has ever come in the top 15. No one. It's a great story. And the whole without the a hole nice and one, story to overshadow Brooks Kepka winning it's the PGA nice tournament is ridiculous. It's a nice story without the hole in one. Well, you know what?
0: Here's of why of it's Macaroon. a nice story. Let's get to the it's, sociology of this. Be quiet for a second. A Be quiet for individual. a second. All right. Shh. That's why. Shh. All right. Here's the sociology of it. Most people think that golf is is so stuffy that they can't stand it so here comes this guy who breaks through that 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 uh, stuffy veneer and he becomes the everyman oh look at this guy and that's the only reason it's a big story no
2: that, that's the way people thought about golf before tiger and all and this young generation of younger guys who are more relatable brooks Kep is relatable uh you know a lot of these guys they just connect with people a little bit better I, years ago yes the game of golf was considered that tiger changed it, and this younger uh, group of young athletes were all all of them look like built like brick shit houses as opposed to as compared to like the golfers that we knew growing up why, let
0: me ask you a question why, why why must you curse on this podcast every single time you threw a goddamn at a shit house out there like it was like you're talking in a saloon.
2: <laughs> this is a respected podcast. Can you get less crude all right go ahead. <laughs> I just think that you can't appreciate a real underdog story. I appreciate an underdog story. He interest. didn't win. He, if he won right. the tournament, it would be the story of the of the millennium. In he the finished fifteenth. No, in the history of the game, no course pro has ever. Oh, finished that's so all top right, top it's a 15. nice
0: story. It's not like this is not like to me. This is not. Uh, that that big of a, of a deal, and it's only be a big deal because it's in every man who did it, and people are yeah. programmed to be that's, that's,
2: that that the golf is stuffy. That's the only reason it's a good story. It's relatable. What I I think the stuffiness that you talk about with golf is gone. What I don't think is there's is, nobody uh, that's likable on the PGA tour. Not one person is likable. That's why when a guy comes along who's like, no,
0: there's nobody likable in the PGA Tour. There's not one guy that's likable.
2: I, I disagree. Like who? I who's who's overly likable? John Rom's likable? John Rahm's not likable. He's why? he's a he's a great player. He's a, he doesn't have a personality that's that likable. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that is likable. <laughs> There's nobody that's likable. People watch golf because they watch the
0: skill of it. They don't need a likable guy. They watch it because of the skill. Because you're trying to replicate the way these guys You're in awe of the way these guys play. That's the appeal of golf.
2: I, I think Rory McIlroy is uh, another one who's very, very, very likable. It's not the stuffy game that you think it. You, and it used to have. It's that. totally stuffy. You don't. You don't get to that level without being raised on a country club. You don't go hit a ball on a field and contend. I bet you this guy was raised in a country club. He's from Iowa. His well, I he was probably in, was probably no, raised in a country life. club in Iowa.
0: <laughs> we, we,
2: he came he came up Cobb's Creek and 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 and, and, and finished fifteenth. That stuffy capital of the planet, Northern Iowa. doesn't matter. Every club is semi-stuffy. <laughs> That's
0: yeah. why people hate it, because the everyman can't relate to it. So oh, this guy God. comes along, and he's looked at as the everyman, and I go, I think Brooks Koepka won the tournament. This guy didn't win the tournament? Yeah. Every All club right. is not stuffy. All right, let's All move right. on. Congratulations. He got the biggest payday of his life. I hope he has great success. My chances are he's not because this game, if you're not good consistently, you're you're soon going to be off the tour. So that's the way that's going to work.
2: Him. One other thing I want to add that I thought was great. He literally he let his emotions come out in front of uh, uh, while the cameras were on him. It's good to see. Uh, it really is because most of these athletes, Mike, you know, they're right. trained I to be it. robots. I get they it. It's, I get it. With,
0: uh, listen, I I get it. It's a nice it's a story. story. You might you might think this guy went head to head with uh with Ben Hogan and slayed
2: him. He finished fifteenth. All right, he had a hole in one. And where did the number one player in the world finish? Because it was higher than 15. The
0: number one player in the world is probably going like- to win another tournament next week, so it doesn't really matter. Maybe, All right. Uh, by the way, speaking of that tournament, uh, Mikey Miss and his partner, Steve Sharkey, finished seventh in the Derby, and that's uh, with 84 teams and 170 golfers. So uh, Mikey Miss, with his, with his biggest accomplishment, in uh, in golf, congratulations. There you go. I, I was at seven to I finished about. seventh. Um, uh, Michael Block finished fifteenth. So I just want to. I just want
2: <laughs> No, no, nobody's having a parade for me today. All right. Oh man. <laughs> anyway, you're great.
0: I love you. Dude. Number two on the hit list for Mike Unleashed. Uh, the A's announcer Glenn Kuiper was fired. He needed to be fired. My God, if you're going to bring this guy back for saying the N word so freely. He went to the, the N-word uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. It came out of his mouth like he was saying candy, Uh and so he he gets fired. And uh, they, they don't give me cancel culture now with this guy. I mean, this guy said that, that that a word that no one ever ever should say. All right, no white person any anyway should ever say that. And this guy just threw it out there like it was nothing. Like he and he said like. Like what? What is his justification for it? You've obviously said it before in conversation with your buddies. That's probably what you say. So get out. I'm sorry you lost your profession. Maybe five years years down the road, somebody will forgive you. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's move on now to football. A couple of issues. I know that you uh, probably have some opinions on Darren, the new quarterback rule. Uh, you're allowed now to address an emergency quarterback. If your first two guys get hurt, he can go in the game. And this is obviously comes off the, uh, but you, see, this is a great thing for the league. This is a necessary rule, but you're going to frame it like it was uh, the 49ers complaining. So go ahead.
2: Yeah, I, it's a good rule. It really is. It's a good rule. It's needed, uh, it, particularly, w- particularly with the position and how often injuries happen. It's a good rule. I have no problem with the rule. It's the messenger. This team, the San Francisco 49ers, have not shot up whining about the nfc title game for months mike it's the end of may i'm gonna be on the beach down the shore it's memorial day weekend in a few days you and i'll both be down ashore it's an, it's it's enough it's enough i don't care the second coming joe montana was the quarterback for that game the 49ers were not winning they were not and, and you know what you were blocking hassan reddick with with me with a backup tight end, I don't want to hear it. He's he's a ferocious defender. Block him. Don't piss and well, moan. Uh, your whole team. Listen, I,
0: I don't know what have what might have happened uh, had they been able to play another Come quarterback. On. Uh, Josh Johnson wasn't going to beat him. The, the backup quarterback would have had been good enough to beat him. They didn't have anybody on their roster. They wouldn't have had anybody on their roster good enough to beat the Eagles anyway. So I, I don't, I don't listen to baby to, to childish complaints. Like I, that's stuff that doesn't affect me. With, you know, whatever those guys say doesn't affect me. So I, me you get heated up. No, you get heated up. Care, I'm part of the 49ers whining. Boy, who cares? Who cares? They they lost. Losers. It's a loser's lament. Who cares about a loser's lament? Who cares?
2: They lost. Shut up. Take your loss and get back I laugh in the, at the training it. room. God, I
0: can play. Prepare. You still lost. Like I, you, it gets under your skin. Things get under your skin. It's weird.
2: Well, let me ask you this. Do you think, first of all, there's no, I don't think there's any quarterback they could have had in the NFC, any NFC quarterback they could have had that would have won that game. No, that's
0: what me. I'm saying. So it's it's a it's a foolish complaint. Now, the rule to have another guy there is a good rule that it comes from it. But I didn't listen to any of these 49ers complaints. It happens. That's the breaks. If I'm a 49er, like, you'd suck it up and go, oh, that's the break. We did not have a quarterback. It's the way it works. Maybe we would have won with a, with a quarterback. Maybe we wouldn't have won. But. The complaints are just—they're just, they're just howls in the wind, man. They just blow Mike, away. Who night, cares no, 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 what they no, say? No, no, no,
2: no. Night of the game, day after the game. I get it. That week you're <laughs> hot. I get it. <laughs> it's months, dude. It's disrespect to the Eagles. Oh, dude, that Eagles defense. I disrespect. Yeah, which, that at the team. end of the day,
0: who cares that they're complaining? How <laughs> <affect> <laughs> does it affect you?
2: How does it affect your life? does it affect your life. life? You get heated up for no me reason. As Eagle fan. It affects me as an Eagles fan for yeah, months, I'm trying, and months. I'm trying to learn you disrespect.
0: something in your your older age, man. You get you, you, these things that bother you are just interesting to me. Uh, anyway, let's go to the last one: the flexing of the Thursday night games. Seems to be outrage over this. As far as far as I know, the NFL is for the people. Like you know, I I have sympathy for the players and their lament. They have that's why they have a players' union. Like you, you know, they, they, this is going to be hard on the players. The, a game that's flexed, I get it. Um, it's all about entertaining the fans that make the give the the, the lead the lifeblood. So if the fans are gonna benefit from a Thursday flex, where's the outrage? Where should I have the outrage as a fan? Well, as a player I might have some outrage. Where would I where am I supposed to have the outrage? Because maybe the home team ticket is gonna be a little uh inconvenienced? Like you, know, you have to ticket it for Sunday and now you gotta do the third like if it, if the product is for the consumer and it benefits the consumer to have a better game on Thursday, what is the problem with flexing the Thursday night game? Am I missing something?
2: You know, uh, Mark Davis is a weird guy. He's really strange. Mark Davis is the owner. Uh, Al Davis' son He's the owner of the, uh, the uh-huh. Raiders. He made a yep. pretty good point. Let's just say you're traveling, right? And you're... Uh, you're traveling to a Thursday night game, and, and you get your hotel, you get your tickets, and you're, and you're in town Wednesday, and you're going to enjoy the town, wherever it may be, and you're out, you're flying out Friday. Uh, now you're, the game's Sunday, and you found out a week ago. Now you got to worry about a hotel. Like, I mean, just think from a fan's perspective. How
0: many people is that going to affect? Just the people going to the game, people to buy a ticket. 60,000 people at the most. They're, they're, we're talking about millions of an audience that's going to benefit from it. That's what the that's what the product is for. Who cares about the people that buy a ticket?
2: I don't have a problem with them flexing the game because I don't, you know, it's not going to bother me. But I can see that point. There's a there's a lot of fans that would be inconvenienced,
0: but It's a minority point. The I league was, is for the majority of the viewer. The scheduling who, and Who cares t- about the inconvenience of the ticket buyer? Who cares? That's that's secondary to the audience being benefited by a better game. Look, if you're gonna all right, my hold on, hold on, no, no, hold on. See, that's impeccable logic. see that uh, I just defeated then- you with impeccable logic. Get out. End of story. That's a TKO. Here comes here comes
2: Mills Lane. He's closing it down. All right. Mike, my one point is here, okay. Look, if you're gonna do that, because you have to understand the Thursday night schedule sucks every week. It sucks for 17 weeks. So there's reason to flex every game. There really is. Every single game, you can flex. So what are you going to do? Flex every game? A better game this week. Great. How about you do a better job of making the primetime games, Thursday night included, a better matchup?
0: You can never figure that it's going to be a, a better matchup. That's why the flex principle comes in. But my point here is this. The greater good is served by the television audience getting a better game. Uh, so the the needs of the sixty thousand people that buy the ticket, unfortunately, in this world, are secondary. All right, so live with it and stop bitching and moaning. It's it's you're gonna get a the majority of people are gonna get a better game, and it's a shame that they flexed your Sunday game to Thursday, and you got to go to work on on Friday. So sorry. All right, that's the way I feel about it. And I just slayed you with impeccable logic. You slay me, this. M- Mills slay Lane. yeah, boxing Hold officials on. coming in. He's waving his hands. It's a TKO.
2: <laughs> All right. <laughs> I right, listen, and they're consistently bad on Thursday night, Mike. It's not like once in a while is a bad Thursday game. Dude, every Thursday, I just, game t- I just TKO'd
0: you. Stops. The TKO guy is the one that gets out of the ring. He doesn't come back in and have anything to say. You're done. You've, you're finished. You're out. All right. That's the end of that. Uh, all right. That was Mike Unleashed. Let, let's, uh, let's close it down for today. Again, thanks to the great uh, Tim Kirchin. I want to tell you about a special event that's happened. World Day weekend. A lot of people going down the shore, right? So if you're going down the shore, Saturday, May 27th, a special event at uh, the winery that uh, I'm a part owner of, Natalie Vineyards. It is uh, called Cellar Talk with Mike Missnell. See what we did there with the cellar, the wine cellar, the whole bit. Cellar talk. Wine cellar will be right in the, in the in the in the vines. And I'll be hanging out with people from one to four PM. At Natalie Vineyards, that's uh tw- 221 North Route 47. That's Delcy Drive in Cape May Courthouse. So come out and, and hang out with me. Share some good wine and some great conversation at Natalie Vineyards. 221 North Route 47, Delcy Drive. It's, if you're coming from PA, it's exactly one hour from both the Ben and the Walt Bridges. And if you're in Jersey, your head down is sure you know exactly where it is. Um, so I'm looking forward to this again. It's Saturday from one to four more a day a week. If you want anything to do it on Saturday, come down, spend a couple hours and hang out with me and drink some great wines at Natalie vineyards. Uh, also, uh, you can uh, my website, uh, Mike Uh, I am now featuring each week. I'll be featuring a video blog wrapping up the sports week. So some of the things you've heard on the podcast, uh, will be replicated on Friday in, in a kind of a video blog. And I'll also write it out. So if you want to, you, if you'd rather read it, than watch it. It'll be a written out blog right there on my website. This is mikemiss.com. Go to that and check it out. In fact, I did a, a blog. I have a blog on it right now from last week that you might want to check out uh, on the website, mikemiss.com. All right, you can get in touch with me at email, mike at mikemiss.com. I'll get your emails. And I answer every single one of them. And of course, on Twitter, it is mikemiss.com. All right. So we have another podcast coming your way on Thursday of this week as we roll into the Memorial Day weekend. Thanks to Tim Kirchin. Thanks for listening to uh, the show today. We had a lot of fun doing it. It is the Mike Missinelli podcast. Don't forget to remind your friends and neighbors. All you got to do is go wherever you get your podcast, Apple, iTunes, uh, Google. In fact, uh, some guy, I don't know how to do podcasts. I go look at me your phone. See your Google search engine. Put in the Mike Missinelli podcast. They put it in. I go, all right, now click that button. Boom! It pops right up. So when it pops right up, all you do is hit the subscribe button, and it'll automatically come to your inbox, all right, for free. You can't beat it. The Mike Missanelli Podcast, we're having a lot of fun. We're approaching our 100th episode since we started doing this last September. We're all excited about that. All right, everybody have a great rest of the day. It's a beautiful day. Have a great rest of the week. Uh, For Darren, I'm Mike Missanelli. We'll talk to you Thursday, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening to the Mike Messinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.